Do you schedule and host events in the Jewish community? Conferences, webinars, local events? Please consider adding your events to Jcast Network's newest project, the Jewish Communal Events Calendar. Don't schedule events, but know someone who does? Invite them to add their events. If we all work together, we can create another wonderful resource for the Jewish community. Visit our calendar and post your events at jcastnetwork.org slash jcpc. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit mikenopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. All right, welcome everybody. So this is session two of our three-part series, Who is God? Um, If you were looking for contemporary French baking, that's next door. Uh, But uh, we we, we spent the bulk of our time (laughs) last time uh, uh, sort of... uh, Getting like, sorry, this is sort of awkward. Um, okay, um, sort of like uh, getting an overview of of, uh, of uh, what we were striving to accomplish uh, here and why we were uh, striving to accomplish it, why we were studying this in the first place, and and uh, and, and what the meaning of the study is that we're doing. Uh, and then we uh, studied uh, the first of the thinkers that we're going to look at. So let me just do a quick recap of that, uh, and, uh, and then we'll, we can uh, move on uh, to, uh, to tonight's agenda. So uh, in, in general, what we're, what we're striving to do is uh, what's known uh, in, um, in you know, academic circles as theology. Theology literally means talking about God, uh, but it also sort of more technically means striving to uh, understand from a rational philosophical perspective uh, what it is that we mean uh, when, we, when we talk about God, how we know what we know about God, um, uh, what do we know about God, what can we say that we know about God, how do we experience God, and how do we know that we can experience God that way. Hey, David. Um, you're going to need uh, each of these things. And so our objective together is not only to talk about uh, our personal um, our personal beliefs and our personal experience of God, although those are relevant and important to the conversation. The challenge of theology is to translate those uh, beliefs into uh, into commonly understood language, right? So that so that you can create. A, um, a, a compelling picture of what God is that might be informed by or based on those beliefs or those experiences that you've had, but are, um, that, but are relatable and understandable to people outside of yourself. So if I have a beautiful mystical experience, that might be well and good for me. If I want to then say, this is my understanding of God based on that experience, it has to, be, uh, it has to utilize objective language or more objective language. Right, so that's one of the challenges of, of theology. That's what we're working on uh, um, here is to try uh, to see what we can know or, um, or, or, or understand about God uh, in more uh, rational, objective uh, kind of language. Um, theology also uh, really only emerges uh, from a problem or from a challenge or from a conflict. Uh, um, so... The, the, auth- the, 
depending on your theology, either the author with a capital A or the authors of the Bible, were not particularly interested in the work of theology. They weren't, they, the Bible itself is not a rational argument uh, for the existence of God or an argument about the nature of God. The Bible asserts things about God. Um, the Bible makes claims about God. The Bible uh, treats God as a given in the universe and a given in, in relationship with, with human beings. Um, uh, in, in large part because the authors of the Bible, uh, that was not the challenge to which they were responding. They were responding to other kinds of, um, uh, not exactly philosophical challenges, but there were other cultural challenges. They were responding to challenges um, of the surrounding polytheistic cultures in which they were living, and so they had to make uh, um, arguments. They didn't really make arguments. Uh, they made assertions about one God versus many gods and why it's important to... Um, so theology really emerges uh, from, uh, from, from challenges to traditional faith, um, whether that is the encounter of one traditional faith culture with another traditional faith culture, as uh, happened, and really the, the inception of Jewish theology is in the, um, is in the uh, Middle Ages when... Um, uh, in in uh, in, Mus- in uh, Jewish uh, uh, life in the Muslim world, uh, because the Muslim world was much more open and inclusive toward the Jewish community than the Christian world was, uh, and the Muslim world was much more interested in philosophy than the Christian world was, uh, and so Jews were actually engaging with and encountering um, uh, 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 Muslim thinkers and and rationalists and uh, and uh, ha- and and you know we're in- engaging in conversations about you know why does Judaism make sense here's why I think Islam makes sense right here's why I think the, the view of God in Islam makes sense so they had to argue and defend and that how and that and that uh, um, process uh, can shape uh, what it is that um, we uh, we might say about God hey um, Right, and it uh, and it continues from there. I mean, we talked last time quite a bit about um, the various uh, uh, challenges uh, to God that exist in the in the modern age. Um, among them are uh, biology, especially things like evolution, um, astronomy or astrophysics, things like uh, relativity and uh, and the Big Bang. Um, uh, Sociology, uh, right, which challenges uh, traditional views of sexuality and gender norms. Um, uh, um, uh, so, you know, it, sociology is important if you have the general assumption that God is a he, right? If you encounter a different sociological system that, uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, doesn't prioritize masculinity uh, or recognizes the equality of male and female, all of a sudden it becomes problematic to talk to God and talk about God in he language, and so then you have to either change the language or make an argument for why you're using that language. Uh, anyway, there's a whole range of, of pursuits that, um, or, or fields that, uh, that make uh, traditional belief problematic in the modern era. So uh, and that, that's not even bringing in history, right? So how do you deal with uh, the Holocaust uh, and still believe in God? How do you deal with the um, inception of the state of Israel and still believe in God? How do you deal with uh, babies dying in terrorist attacks and still believe in God, right? So there's all sorts of things, all manner of things that, uh, that can pose challenges to, um, to uh, um, uh, 
received traditional faith, and all of them, uh, uh, if, if one is going to create a, uh, a compelling case for the endurance of uh, one's beliefs uh, in uh, his or her community, uh, then it calls for uh, rational conversation, rational discussion, which can transcend cultural barriers about, uh, about, about what God is, about who God is. So that's what we started with, which means that the, uh, the, the lens I want us to put on as we look at the different thinkers we're going to look at um, is less, do I like this, although that is relevant too, um, and more, um, is this logical? Does this make sense? What are the arguments I have um, for this and against it? What are its strengths and its weaknesses? And if you look at, uh, there's like a table that I gave you um, that where we can kind of keep tally of the different arguments and the different things that the different thinkers uh, uh, say that we are, that, that we're in the process of studying. So things like what's the relationship between God and the world? How do we know anything about God or about what God asks of us? What is God's ultimate purpose for humanity and the world? What is the nature and meaning of God? What is the nature, meaning, and importance of Torah? And what is the relationship between God and Torah, if anything? What is the significance of the Jewish people, if anything? Uh, and what is the relationship between God and the Jews, as Jews, if it's anything? Right? So these are some of the questions that we want to uh, see if these thinkers address and the, the quality with which they address these questions. And then um, we talked about four different metrics to evaluate uh, the, the writers that we're reading. Uh, the first is authenticity, um, uh, which means uh, can this argument uh, be considered authentically Jewish? Right? It could be a really compelling argument, uh, but not at all consistent with the Jewish tradition. right? Um, so if a Jewish author all of a sudden starts making a really compelling case for, uh, for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, it might be, uh, you might hit high on the coherence scale, right, in the internal logic of the piece, but not necessarily in authenticity, right? So we want Jewish theology here. So we want to know from a Jewish perspective, does this make sense? Coherence, right? So that's the internal logic, right? They're self-contradictions in it? Uh, are there holes in the logic? Are there logical leaps? That sort of thing. Uh, contemporaneity. Uh, does it make sense? Does it create a compelling picture of God for people living right now? Right? And there are all sorts of things that, you know, uh, that, that are uh, present in our world right now, that we know right now, uh, that can be challenging for traditional views of God. We named some of them before. Uh, evolution, uh, the Big Bang, the Holocaust, Hiroshima, right? I mean, like all of these things uh, um, uh, create challenges for contemporaneity of a particular view. So that's one of the things we want to look at is, does this make sense for us right now? Okay, so that's contemporaneity, contemporaneity and communal acceptance, right? So even if you get through all of those, um, what do you think Jews think of this or would think of this, right? Uh, you know, put your finger on the pulse of the worldwide Jewish community. How acceptable is this, uh, is this philosophy, okay? So that means that in uh, uh, more than do I like this, what I want us to do is really be critical evaluators of each of these uh, theories that we're, that we're looking at, even though we're only looking at snippets of them, uh, just in the interest of the limitations of the time that we have. Uh, and, uh, and, and to really kind of uh, um, use the uh, 
cool air of logic in evaluating them. Let it, let it flow through us like, like an alpine lodge. Okay? Um, that doesn't mean we can't have emotional responses to it. That's fine. But, uh, uh, but let's uh, also put our, our uh, rational minds on. Okay? So let's start. For those of you who were here last week, um, is anybody, or last time, I guess you said two weeks ago, um, does anybody remember uh, any of what uh, we, the first thing we studied was a thinker named Samson Raphael Hirsch, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, who lived in the 19th century in Germany, was, uh, is considered the founding father of modern orthodoxy. Anybody remember uh, some of the things that Hirsch said about, about God? And uh, someone want to give a brief uh, thought about... He's active in the world. Uh-huh. Okay, and how does that active force work in the world? It seems like that everything uh, you know, has energy and function and sustained by God at every moment. Mm-hmm. And the moment he would you know, look away from that, that, that system would collapse. Would collapse. Um, and so does that mean that everything that happens in the world happens by virtue of what we would call uh, divine providence, right? That, uh, that, that nothing happens without God willing it to happen? Or, or an order. Wasn't it, wasn't it in, in some sense of an order? Right. So, the, so this is, I think, one of the challenging things about Hirsch is it's, it seems to me a little bit unclear, right? Uh, is he saying, is he kind of arguing for, uh, you know, uh, uh, the deist kind of watchmaker God? Right? That uh, he talks about God in the beginning of the essay that we looked at almost like an artist, right? And you can know the artist through the work of art, right? So you can know God through creation, through examining the intricacies of creation, the order of creation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and so if, if that's the conception of God, uh, then, uh, then uh, it, it's um, uh, hard to see God as. Uh, constantly actively involved in uh in creation um uh because for god to be constantly actively involved in creation would diminish i think the extent to which that there's an established order right um on the other hand it also seemed like uh uh that hirsch said uh, that god created the world and then infused god's self within the established order so that nothing happens outside of uh, of god willing it to happen um, so, so there's, there's this sort of, uh, um, uh, maybe it's an inconsistency, I don't know, in, in Hirsch's thought. Uh, maybe it's just uh, uh, a, a, a logical idiosyncrasy that I'm not sure how to bridge. Uh, but you, you have simultaneously God as the, the orchestrator and establisher of the order of the universe, and also as like directly, intimately involved in every aspect of the functioning of the universe. Um, now, all of that is, um, uh, you know, we didn't get to the essay where he talks about man, but if, um, if it's the first thing, right, if the order of the universe is, is established by God, uh, man has a, a really um, strange function, right, because man in some senses seems to upset the established order of the cosmos, uh, because of free will and because of uh, of our our role in nature and and all that, in some ways, it, uh, Hirsch seems to think of of uh, man being outside of nature, 
Um, because in, in the description of the creation of the world that we, that we read, uh, we, many people remarked, you know, uh, man is not present in this picture. Right? Um, so he talks all about the rocks and the oceans and the, and the stars and all these great things. Right? But man is not present in that, in that picture, right? giving off the impression that man is, is some, somehow uh, imposed upon nature, right? Out, somehow outside of nature. Um, on the other hand, <clears throat> if God uh, orchestrates everything in creation and nothing happens outside of God's providence, um, then what do you do with something like free will? Right? How does free will exist in that kind of system? Um, uh, so, uh, so good. That's that's uh, that's a challenge. So when we say, you know, what's the relationship between God and the world? I think that that that, that might not be totally clear in Hirsch's view. Um, how do we know anything about God or about what God asks of us in Hirsch's view? How do we know anything? Examination of his work. Right. You know the artist through the work of art. Right, I think that that's I think that that's right. Um, now, you know, I I, uh, uh, I had a really interesting conversation with uh, um, the person who's who's the congressman for for some of us, Dave Bratt. Um, we were talking. He's a very philosophical guy, and we were talking about this. And I made some statement about um, uh, um, something that was like like scientific fact is also was also like a moral value. And he said, you actually can't prove a value from a fact, right? Um, and, uh, and so I think that that's relevant here. So if you know God through creation, right? You can know God has, you know, is a, 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 a um, you know, beautiful designer, you know, in, right? But, but how do we know anything about what God wants of us from the fact of creation? Right? How do we know anything about uh, moral values from the fact of creation. So, uh, or how, so how do we know about what God asks of us? What do you think Hirsch would say? To take care of the earth and ourselves and one another. Okay, I, I certainly think he probably wouldn't argue with that. Um, but how do we know that? How do we know that? It's, is it intrinsic? Could it be intrinsic? Um, well, maybe except for, you know, you can see, you know, lions eating gazelles and uh, you see all sorts of nasty stuff in nature. So how do we know that we're not supposed to, you know, it's an eat or be eaten world and we should eat. Because we have needs to be physically nourished and they have to survive. They have to be fed. They're not domestic creatures. They're wild animals. Right. And why are we not? Because civilization <laughs> I think with his view, animals are more almost like they're just mechanisms, just a program that's running. Uh -huh. We just observe, but somehow we're outside of that. Interesting. Okay, so that, uh, that's an interesting analogy, right? That uh, that the animals are are like a program that's continually running, and we're what like like. Uh, we're, we're intelligence, or, or in that metaphor, artificial intelligence, right, that, uh, um, that, that exists outside the system. I think that Hirsch would also say, and, and this is sort of maybe a, a trick question to ask you because we didn't really look at it, but I think that he would say, we, we know what God asks of us uh, from the Torah, which God also created. Right, and so the Torah is one of God's creations, right? That exists in the world, right? And we know what God asks us in the Torah. Um, okay, good. Um, uh, let's let's just uh, we so that's that's a little bit from Hirsch, and, and we rated him last time on um, authenticity, coherence, contemporaneity, and, and communal acceptance. So just um, just 
to move on from here. Any thoughts about positives and negatives, strengths and weaknesses of, uh, of Hirsch's view of God as, as far as we understand it? Well, I think for some it might be comforting to know that everything's in God's hands. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he has a limitation as the parent that do we have free will? Right. You know, then if we don't, then we're just robots or automatons. Or... Right. You also have a, 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 um, a difficulty, of course, and I think one of the weaknesses of, of a view like that, if everything is in God's hands, then how do you explain right. you know, atrocities or tragedies? Right? What's that? It's how do you explain evil? Right, yeah. Right. Well, right, right. So one possibility, one way of explaining that, of doing that is that God has a deeper uh, purpose or deeper knowledge of what's good and evil than we, than we are aware of and we intuit. Well, with, in this um, vein, with God giving us free will, um, he doesn't orchestrate how we use that will. Right. And so would that possibly account for the atrocities and the diseases and, uh, and well, the diseases are just from right. selling whatever, you know, I mean, things that happen. Well, right, I think you're right. I mean, so I don't, I, I mean, diseases maybe not. It depends on, it depends on the disease. And I think that there's, there's often a man-made component, a free will component to the spread of diseases, um, at least some diseases. Um, uh, but you're right. I mean, if indeed uh, Hirsch allows for free will in his world, and I think that that's a, a real question, um, uh, um, you then you then of course can can provide for all sorts of manner of evil through the human free will. You still have a question though that in a, in a universe that is entirely created and orchestrated by God, why God chose to give to give human beings free will knowing presumably that human beings would use that for ill. Um, so, I mean, you know... Um, yeah. Nothing's Did, perfect. And, uh, I don't think he intended to make a perfect world. It's so interesting, though, because reading through uh, um, the essay we read, Hirsch seems to describe the world as a perfect world, doesn't he? It's so intricate and so beautiful, and everything functions harmoniously. And I think that might be the, what the purpose is in his view too. Is the way Hirsch describes it is so perfect and awe-inspiring that maybe our purpose is just to worship that, just to, to be in constant awe and, and uh, um, awe of of what we observe in the universe. How everything just seems so, and just worship God mm. uh, without regard for much of anything else. Yeah, in harmony with. With our surroundings and the universe and each other. Mm-hmm. Did God give us free will? <laughs> or is that what Adam and Eve got when they ate from the tree? Well, so what we didn't... Is free will something we took? Uh, well, how can we take it without having it? Unless God willed us to... Unless God willed us to take it. One way or another, well, God gave us free will, or we don't have free will. Those seem to right. me to be the two possibilities. So then I guess the, the question is, does Satan exist or not? Did the evil one exist or not? Well, we have the mentioned in the book of Job, but he's generally characterized as an angel. He's on God's side, he's just not on our side. A fallen <laughs> angel? Or... Well, you know, so, and, 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 and in fact, I didn't, I didn't list this as one of the categories, but um, of, of, you know, how we think about these thinkers, 
But one, I think, really important category is um, how, how do they deal with evil? Where does evil come from? Right? And uh, so there's a, uh, there's, there's a significant, I would say, um, Jewish challenge and coherence challenge. If you have a system in which there's more than one God, um, evil is not such a big problem. Right? Because one God's responsible for good and another God's responsible for bad. Right? One God's responsible for beauty and another God's responsible for war. Right? Um, but in a system where there's one God, um, you have a much bigger problem when it comes to evil. Right? Because either that, God, uh, um, either that God created evil or created the capacity for evil, in which case God is in some sense evil. Right? Or there's another power in the world that God can't control, which makes God less than uh, what we would call omnipotent, fully powerful. Right? Um, so if, if, there, if, if Satan exists in the world, right, in the, I would say the more classical Christian uh, interpretation of, uh, of, of, uh, of Genesis, right? if, if Satan can tempt Eve, right, it's either because God allowed Satan to do it, in which case um, God has a dark side, Right or um, or Satan has a has a power that God can't control. Right, in which case God isn't. Or chooses not to control. Right, but that's the same thing as allows evil to. Right. right? Well, yes. Yeah. That, that might be a subset of the first one. Right. Yeah. Um, not easy stuff. Okay, good. All right, great. Let's uh, let's move on from Hirsch. So um, Hirsch was sort of just to dip our toes in the water. Uh, we're going to move uh, further in history now uh, to uh, more contemporary people. None of the people we're going to be looking at are 21st century people. Um, the, it, the, there are some good theologians doing 21st century work, and maybe next year we, we can do a uh, follow-up to this class where we do some 21st century people. We're all doing 20th century people right now um, because... Uh, in some senses, that you know, uh, they're still very influential in the Jewish world, and we're moving from uh, from I'd say right to left on the um, spectrum of um, I don't know what what I would call that spectrum. Um, from let's just say from orthodoxy to conservative, um, uh, from from right to left. And, sorry, I meant to go that. from right. To, um, so um, uh, so. Uh, uh, so we learned Hirsch, and by the way, if you remember just a few moments ago, I said that, uh, that, that virtually all uh, theology comes from either a challenge uh, uh, with or an encounter with um, outside belief systems, right? Um, and so that's true of, of, of most Jewish uh, philosophy, right? Uh, starting back with uh, 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 Maimonides uh, is really an encounter with, Jewish encounter with Aristotle. Um, and uh, um, Hirsch is really a Jewish encounter with Immanuel Kant, um, who, uh, if you ever, if you you know, ever took a philosophy class and studied a little bit of Kant, you'll see uh, how Kantian uh, Hirsch is. Kant is you know has sort of like a very orderly system. He's very German, very orderly system, right? Uh, um, yeah, foundational principles, right? And everything sort of emerges from those foundational principles. Uh, you know, so you might have heard of something called uh, the categorical imperative, um, right? So an imperative is uh, like a, a um, uh, something we're, we're uh, uh, compelled to do morally, right? And Kant says that there's a foundational moral imperative, um, uh, which is some version of um, uh, uh, we should not use other people as a means to our own ends, 
right? And this is that as sort of like a foundational principle, right? So Hirsch operates in the same kind of sphere as Kant, right? There's a foundational principle, an axiom, right? Uh, uh, and everything sort of extends from that, right? God is the first principle and everything extends from God. Um, the next thing we're going to learn is um, uh, Joseph Soloveitchik, who uh, uh, was born in, uh, in Russia and uh, uh, lived uh, much of his life in, in the United States, was the head of Yeshiva University uh, in New York, uh, and is really one of the uh, still most, I mean, he's, he's, uh, he, he uh, left this world in 1993, but he's still really one of the most influential figures in modern orthodoxy, American modern orthodoxy, at least today. Um, and, uh, and he really pioneered an approach to, uh, to, uh, to traditional Judaism that he called, uh, uh, or, or that, that, be, that became, I don't know if he coined the term, but it became known as Torah Umada, which means uh, Torah combined with scientific knowledge. Right? So that he believed that it was possible to harmonize uh, traditional views and contemporary scientific insight. Uh, and that you didn't have to sacrifice the former to believe in the latter. Uh, he also, uh, uh, and so, uh, so one of the encounters that we'll see, one of the motivating uh, um, pieces for the essay that we're going to look at selections from today um, is uh, 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 one of the challenges to traditional belief that we identified last week, which is what we would call biblical criticism. Uh, which you know predates Soloveitchik by you know probably a hundred years, uh, but uh, but nevertheless uh, was still a debate you know raging uh, at the time, especially in you know in in, in between conservative and, and uh, Judaism and, and Orthodoxy uh, about the, the the origin and nature of the Bible and therefore the authority of the Bible, and there are lots of um, compelling linguistic arguments for uh, for for. Uh, 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 for biblical criticism, um, uh, the, the, the theory that uh, was generally accepted in academic circles, at least at the time, was called the documentary hypothesis, which said that the, that the Bible was written by four different authors or four different literary traditions that were woven together. And one of the pieces of evidence for that was usually uh, um, the first two chapters of Genesis, in which it seems like there are two different creation stories. Um, and if you look at the first two chapters of Genesis, it certainly seems that way. Uh, one is the story of, uh, of, um, of, uh, uh, of uh, um, it just says God created uh, uh, male and female on the, on the sixth day uh, together, um, and then creation was over with Shabbat. Uh, and then the second story is uh, the story of uh, God forming uh, um, Adam from the dust of the earth and uh, breathing into his nostrils and making him a living being and then uh, seeing that he, it wasn't good for him to be alone and so then creating Eve after him. Right? So it seems like there are two different uh, accounts here. So one of the motivating uh, um, uh, challenges for Soloveitchik in this essay is addressing that uh, uh, insight from a traditional point of view right? and saying that that's actually not a contradiction in the text. It's actually telling us something um, fundamental about who we are and what God is, okay? which is a, a perfectly legitimate uh, move within classical Jewish tradition. Right? You explain uh, inconsistencies in the text 
by saying they're not inconsistencies at all. They're just uh, an opportunity for us to see something deeper, right? Um, and the other encounter I think Soloveitchik has here is with, um, with existentialism, um, which is a uh, philosophy uh, that uh, um, uh, became in vogue in the um, uh, early 20th century, especially around uh, um, the time of the First World War, um, that had a, a very kind of a pessimistic view of modern life and of uh, the, the nature of the world, saw a lot of absurdity. Uh, and chaos in in the world, uh, and so didn't see didn't look at the world in the same way Hirsch looks at the world and sees a lot of like order and stability. Uh, existentialists look look at the world and sees a, see a lot of uh, chaos and violence and disorder, um, and so uh, the human being in the existentialist view is sort of born into a world where they're totally lost, right, um, and that they have to find themselves over the course of, uh, of their life, discover what they're really about and who they really are. So one of the most famous uh, uh, teachings of existentialism, I think, was coined by Jean-Paul Sartre, who said, um, uh, existence precedes essence, right? So uh, we're, we're, we're born into the world, we exist, um, but we aren't really composed of anything until we actually engage in uh, living in the world and discovery about the world and making order out of the chaos that, that's, that's in the world. So that's um, a really influential philosophy to Salvagic and it, it very much informs his perspective on, on God and Judaism. So whereas Hirsch really starts from the point of view of God and creation, seeing the artist through the artwork, Soloveitchik is not going to start there. He's going to start with man himself or, or, or woman herself. He talks about man, uh, but he doesn't necessarily mean like gender-wise man. Okay? So that's where he's going to start. So we're going to get to God in Soloveitchik in kind of a backwards way um, than we did from Hirsch. Hirsch started with God, and that's what we know. We're going to get to God through man in Soloveitchik. Okay? So... Uh, any any questions or comments uh, or observations about any of that before we dig in? Well, the, the way I see the duality in the first and second chapters in Genesis, the first is the creation of man in the spirit, in the image. Mm -hmm. And the second is the immersion of that spirit into the earth and the so good. I, I love that. And you'll be interested to see uh, that Soloveitchik, I think, if I understand it correctly, almost does the exact opposite thing. He says that the first uh, creation in the image of God is God as creator. And so that's the human capacity and propensity to like want to build things and conquer the world. Right. And the second is uh, is uh, uh, man as relator to God. Right. A seeker of God. Um, someone with the breath of God uh, in him that he's constantly trying to capture. Right. Um, so let's look at what he says. OK. So um, on uh, the uh, the the short packet. So what I have, I have selection. I tried to like it's it's basically a long essay, uh, although you can get it in a book form. Um, and I tried to distill it down to like, you know, two pages, which is not super easy to do. But, uh, but um, and then I, then at the last chapter of, his, of, of that essay, um, I think gives a kind of a biblical illustration of what he thinks uh, he's trying, what he's, I think, trying to say. So um, hopefully we'll have a moment we can look at that and maybe that'll make things a little bit clearer. But um, 
why don't we why don't we just uh, um, go around the room and, and anybody who wants to take a paragraph to, to read can and, and feel free to stop and ask questions and comments I might stop here and there and ask you questions but um, Gail would you mind uh, starting us off so he departed then. No, sorry, uh, not there. Uh, the on the other one, um, where it says, "Who is God?" Joseph B. Solovechik. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Everybody see where I am? Where we are? Yeah. The that genuine one. and central cause of the feeling of loneliness from which I cannot free myself is to be found in a different dimension, namely in the experience of faith itself. I am lonely because, in my humble, inadequate way. I'm a man of faith for whom to be means to believe. Okay, so let's just pause it really quickly. When he says lonely here, he makes this clear a little bit earlier in the book. He doesn't mean that he doesn't have any friends. Uh, he, he, he calls this um, ontological loneliness. Right. This is this is existentialism. Right. Like I'm 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 born into the world where I'm a total stranger to everybody and to myself. Right. I might have friends. I might have a wife. I might have kids. Right. But like deep down inside, I'm really lonely. I'm like lost in the world. Right. That's what that's sort. That's what he means there. I think. Um, right. And uh, okay. All right. Um, you willing to keep going or you, yeah? Okay. Uh, the man of faith looks upon himself as a stranger in modern society, which is technically minded, self-centered, and self-loving, almost in a sickly narcissistic fashion, scoring honor upon honor, piling up victory upon victory, reaching for the distant galaxies, and seeing in the here and now sensible world the only manifestation of being. What can a man of faith like myself, living by a doctrine which has no technical potential, by a law which cannot be tested in the laboratory, steadfast in his loyalty to an eschatological vision whose fulfillment cannot be predicted with any degree of probability, let alone certainty, even by the most complex advanced mathematical calculations, what can such a man say to a functional utilitarian society? Um, eschatological, uh, for uh, those who aren't familiar with the term, um, <coughs> es- Excuse me. <coughs> um, eschaton is like the end of days, the end of time, messianic era sort of thing. So an eschatological vision um, is, uh, is the, you know, the coming of the Messiah, right? So um, steadfast is loyalty to, an, to, a, to a vision of a redeemed world, of a perfected world, right? Whose fulfillment cannot be predicted. Like we don't know when that's going to happen, right? Nobody, nobody knows. There's no probability for it, right? It's an interesting conception uh, or acknowledgement of, uh, of one of the challenges of traditional religious life, right? We live in this technical world where, you know, there are all these metrics for success and all these uh, systems in place to understand uh, fact and reality, right? And if you hold up uh, um, traditional religious thought and practice to any of those metrics, it doesn't seem to hold muster, right? So he's really responding to one of the dilemmas of his time, I think, where, uh, and this was written, I think, in the, in, in the um, 50s, if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, maybe even 60s. Uh, 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 one of the um, challenges of his time where, where religion seems to be receding uh, in the face of science. And he's pointing out, I think, one of the, the, the challenges that he sees, right, that, you know, um, uh, doctrine has no technical potential, right? So if you observe Shabbos, um, you are not going to live necessarily a more successful life. And if you do, it's probably not caused by the fact that you observe Shabbos, right? It, 
there may there you know um, there may be a correlation, but it's not causation, right? Um, uh, it can't be test- a law can't be tested in the laboratory, right? So we 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 have no way of of, of proving that uh, living by the Torah makes you a better person than not living by the Torah. Um, first of all, because there's no way to prove what we mean by better person, right? Um, so all of this is 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 in some sense is subjective. Um, so he's laying out, I think, you know, um, uh, the, the, the challenges that he sees, what, what exacerbates the feeling of, of loneliness of a person who is predisposed to faith. And he actually thinks that every person is predisposed to faith. Okay, so when he, when he says the lo- a, a man of faith for whom to be means to believe, I actually think he's not only talking about himself, he's talking about everybody. That's the human condition. To be is to believe. What, what you believe in, why you believe in it, how you believe in it, um, whether you agree to believe in it, right? whether you run away from that belief, all of that is in the process of, uh, of, of pursuing the essence within existence, right? in the language of, uh, of existentialism. Um, but I think all of us are born people of faith for whom to be means to believe. Okay? And what are we supposed to do in a utilitarian world where that's our nature? Um, okay, wanna pick up? The man of faith, self-knowledge has one con- connotation only, to understand one's role, one's place and role within the scheme of things, in the scheme of events and things willed and approved by God. When he ordered finitude to emerge out of infin- infinity and the universe, including man, and to unfold itself, this kind of self-knowledge may not always be pleasant or comforting. Comforting. On the contrary, it might from time to time express itself in pains, painful appraisals of the difficulties which man of faith, caught in the paradoxical destiny, has to encounter. Right, okay. So, um, let's, let's keep going a little bit further. You mind keeping on going? Yeah. We, all, yeah. we all know that the Bible offers two accounts of the creation of man. The answer lies not in the alleged dual tradition, but in the dual man, not in the imaginary contradiction between the two versions, but in the real contradiction in the nature of man. You were going to keep going? Yeah. There is no doubt that the term image of God in the first account refers to the man's inner charismatic endowment as a creative being. Man's likeness to God expresses itself in man's striving and ability to become a creator. Adam the first is overwhelmed by the quest, namely to harness and dominate the elemental natural forces and to put them in his, to put them in, at his disposal. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. Uh, thoughts, comments, questions so far? Uh, Describing an ability to become a creator that's where we get the positive and negative. Some choose to use that driving force for good, and some choose to use it for evil. Right. And therefore, we bring it on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Collectively, not individually. Or potentially individually, too, but yeah. And, yeah. you know, in the greater scheme, it's collectively in the individual life that we have our own our own uh, load to bear. Right. So it's so uh, um, 
and, and I think that this actually you know really reflects um, the existentialist view of of of, uh, of things uh, that. Um, um, I think the highest ideal in that system of thought is 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 freedom, right? We're free to choose our own destiny. We're free to choose our own place. So it's not surprising then that uh, for Soloveitchik, um, uh, the notion of human free will to create, whether for good or ill, would be um, would be a, a foundational value. And so when he says something above, you know, the scheme of events and things willed and approved by God. Um, uh, that that he that included in the scheme of events and things willed and approved by God is human freedom, right? So God um, uh, um, allows in the system uh, uh, for human freedom. It's it, um, the Talmud has this uh, expression that says, "Hakol which means that everything is in the hands of heaven except for the fear of heaven, right? So uh, so you know everything God you know willed and approved. Um, except for human beings' ability to live according to God's will, right? And, um, and whether that in, uh, makes God ultimately responsible for the evil that human beings do is an open question. But still, in that system, uh, uh, people can create for, for good or ill. It's also something, by the way, when we say, you know, um, uh, uh, we, we know about... In some ways, he's saying something similar to what Hirsch says. We know about God... Um, uh, because of what we know about ourselves, right? So we know that God is a creator because we are creators and we are created in the image of God, right? So therefore, God is a creator, right? Therefore, God has the creative capacity that we have. Um, okay, other thoughts, questions, observations about this so far? Was there a Hebrew word for create in the sense of God creating versus anything we do? Is there a separate word? Well, the, the Hebrew the, for God creating is bara. Uh-huh. Um, uh, for human beings creating, I'm not sure um, if that word, if there's ever really a word that I'm just uh, sort of like scanning off the top of my head. I have to think about it, but I, I can't think of a word that's used to say that human beings create things. It's an interesting thing because bara, I don't know. I have to, I have to think uh, about that. Right. In the, right. In that sense. Right. Maybe there's a different term for how we create. Right. So I guess we don't create. We just make. We make. Right. Make, right. We fashion. We fashion. Right. So that's what I was gonna say. Is like I think that um, the the term for for human creative activity is like oseh and you know things like that. Bara. I'm not sure. I'm not. There's there's all sorts of debate about uh, about um, if whether the Bible uh, actually. Uh, holds that God created the world out of nothing, um, and it's the the Bible itself seems to be abs- uh, silent on that on that question. Um, uh, so so it I guess is a question about whether bara like creates really means like like made something appear when nothing else appeared, uh, or whether it's also some form of of fashion. <laughs>